0: this might be a helpful segue and I don't know, I'll put it out there cause you wouldn't have known this about me either. But, um, um while I was a student at Regent, I uh-huh. took some of my elective courses through the Robertson school of government
1: <laughs> oh, okay. and
0: I had attempted to, um, um, like get a certificate in pu- law and public policy, oh. but they wouldn't allow me to count classes towards both of uh. those like programs or tracks so i I didn't end up doing that much but uh. um, that that's been sort of an element of my education and background
2: that okay uh,
0: and, like I've continued yeah
2: um what got you interested in in taking the electives in in that area
0: um when I was an undergrad student, mm. I had double majored in psychology and fine arts. Okay. And um, i I had the opportunity to go on a study abroad to Italy for art, but realized if I did that, I wouldn't have enough time to finish my credits for psychology so i can't do that unfortunately (laughs) but then i realized in not going i actually had more space and time so i'm like oh what the heck i'll pick up a minor in political science (laughs) (laughs) and i think yeah why not and a lot of people were like i mean okay like i'm not really sure how those things are related um (laughs) But I I really enjoyed, I mean, I was interested and enjoyed all three of those things in all of my classes, but I really started to appreciate sort of the overlap between each of those things like Mm. creativity and mental health or Uh uh, law and public policy and healthcare, or like even taking a philosophy course on aesthetics and Mm. how that sort of intersected with like psychology and beauty and our Uh, conceptions of that so um i i just i just found that really interesting so i looked for an opportunity to sort of continue that while at regent that's really cool yeah
2: (laughs) um okay yeah so i um let's see how do i so at, at regent um i come from more of like a I come from Ohio, like Southern Ohio in the country, kind of like the Bible Belt area. And mm-hmm. uh, I've always been, I've always considered myself mostly conservative politically.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, and then coming to Regent and especially in the psychology program, I found that my views are kind of in the minority. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then me and my wife are talking about it. And when we That's even, we were talking about conceptualizing, conceptualizing our clients and one of the normal, or I guess most used ways to conceptualize our clients, especially for like a case presentation is through Hayes addressing model. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about, um, I don't know if you know, like Candace Owens or Larry Elder or some of those names, but we were talking about, they None of these people would say that these parts of the addressing model makes up their like their most salient uh, identity like variables, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and they view the world much different than someone who doesn't align politically with them. Okay. And so we were we were saying like no one even we never even ask our clients um, where they are, like either a Democrat or Republican. And especially in the last few years, I remember, I lived in maryland for a while and i had to i was looking for places to live
0: yeah. and
2: a lot of the websites that w- people were advertising an extra room and they and it was around the time of like the trump election i think and they would just say like if you voted for trump don't even think about like reaching out to oh, me you know no. <laughs> and and so yeah it is very divisive in many ways currently and we don't even really discuss that with our clients or conceptualize them yeah. through this yeah then so and then I reached out to um, um, Dr. Richard Redding.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, he had written, uh, there was a, on the APA's website, they had a article on sociopolitical values and uh, psychology in our clients. And then, so he put me in contact with you and lo and behold, mm-hmm. you graduated from Regent University as well. <laughs> <and> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, so can you just kind of... Um, can you talk through, I guess, uh, what your experience has been like and what your kind of current research interests are? And um, maybe how your your political science and, uh, you know, long government education has mm-hmm. kind of helped you in thinking through these issues?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it was like around 2015 that I had finished my dissertation, which... incorporated a lot of feminist topics um, and research and at the time I would have identified as a feminist and um, like just didn't really view those things with too much of a critical perspective um, and maybe a little bit naively um, and it wasn't until like after finishing my dissertation that I read um, Christina Hoff Summer's book, Who Stole Feminism? Which I think was published in like 1995. So it's a little outdated now, but a lot of what she described that was happening culturally at that time and um, like trending was really alarming to me. Like that Mm. government had funded a huge amount of money based on research, that was very misleading and distorted and Mm. has continued to have a ripple effect. I think Uh even today, like people still sort of um, buy into certain assumptions. I think like one of the examples was about like young girls having low self-esteem in a way that boys didn't and that Mm. resulted in like this really like big social concern. But really like the research was really misconstrued and distorted and that was one example of kind of many but in reading that i it just sort of catalyzed this process where i started reading more and more and more books (sighs) watching lectures like getting my hands on anything that like would start feeding my insatiable curiosity at that Mm. point and um i really came to feel frustrated that like okay my dissertation i wish i could redo it now because (laughs) i realized like it it was sort of adopting an ideological perspective without really appreciating like the full picture of like human dynamics the relationships Uh between men and women things like that Uh and um concurrently like I remember having attended uh like a professional conference and sitting in like the audience for one of those like um not like the breakout sessions but like the big ones like an opening Mm. session with everyone and the speaker was making like derogatory comments about conservatives (laughs) and I was sitting there and I'm like regardless of what my personal values are or like how I identify personally, like this is really unprofessional <laughs> and inappropriate and uh. everyone is reacting like this is okay. And it's not okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I just couldn't help but think like if the roles were reversed, if like we were making fun of Democrats or liberals, like it would not be okay as well. Yeah. But how did things get to this point where it's okay to shame what is clearly a minority in the profession
1: uh-huh.
0: um, and at that time i had i just started googling like who's a conservative psychologist <laughs> because like surely there's got to be some people here <laughs>
1: uh-huh.
0: and i didn't find very many but one of the people i found was lee jesson who's um a professor, I think, now dean um, at Rutgers University, oh. and he's a social psychologist and studies um, stereotype inaccuracy or stereotype bias in mm. a sort of counter narrative way, I guess you could say. Uh-huh. And um, he and I exchanged communication emails for quite some time, and he was a little bit like a mentor and mm. invited me to write a guest blog for his. Uh, or like a guest article for his blog, and um, and then from there I was just continuing to read and read and try to network with different people. And um, during my internship, we each had the assignment of hosting a seminar on a diversity factor. And I'm like, <laughs> well, I I think I know what I need to present on, even though I'm extremely anxious about doing so because. Um, when you're sort of identifying a problem in your profession that most people are oblivious to, uh-huh. but that is also kind of emotionally salient because uh-huh. when you're sort of um, questioning something about a worldview perspective that people possess, it, uh-huh. it hits a, like a fundamental chord. Uh-huh. Um, it's, it's a sensitive thing to do. And, um, my supervisor at the time was, um, like, didn't necessarily, ag- I don't know that she necessarily agreed with my concerns per se, but she was supportive of my efforts and what I was trying to do. Okay. Oh, um, and that made a big difference, Yeah, but I, and I think it, the presentation went well, but it, the response was just sort of um quiet i guess you could say. <laughs> uh, maybe there's some crickets after and thank you very much now we'll move on <laughs> and this was a sort of environment it was also around the time of the 2016 election mm. and um i remember like showing up the night after the election outcome to um our like to like kind of like a departmental meeting i guess you could say and literally we had a moment of silence it was like people were grieving the loss of a public figure or you know like a, yeah. a tragic national event like 9-11 yeah. i don't know but i i was sitting there thinking like i'm i'm not like pleased about who's who uh-huh. the president is uh-huh. but like i'm not grieving like i don't know why we're sitting here <laughs> doing this right now and if the outcome had been the opposite like i still wouldn't know <laughs> Think like this would be something we should be doing it yeah. just struck me as very peculiar yeah. um and it anyway so after that seminar, I just realized, like, this is too important, like, I want to write about this, I want to research this more. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that's when I really started working on that, um, like, the the outline and the research and the draft for the, um, the paper that I published or that my colleagues and I published on the ideological um, Kind of diversity problem and its implications for clinical practice, hmm. um, and that took a couple of years to sort of get that out and published. But I think the response was pretty positive, and from right. there, it sort of opened the door to other opportunities that I've been really grateful to have. And um, just yeah, it's just one thing has kind of led to another, and. Um, I've taken whatever opportunity I can to talk about this because I think a lot of people in our profession um, are either very committed to a particular uh, like ideological agenda for a lack of a better way to put it uh-huh. and then others are just sort of oblivious to mm. sort of what's happening as yeah. I see it.
2: Yeah. So. How, um, how, has anyone reached out to you because of the work that maybe was oblivious to it? And they're like, oh, I didn't even realize this was happening.
0: Um, hmm. I don't think so. Not that yeah. specifically, but I I did get other emails um, and messages from people saying, like, thank you for doing this. This uh, is really important and needed yeah. right now. Yeah. Um, I hadn't... Res- to be honest with you, I was expecting blowback. I was expecting Uh to have difficulties finding employment or Uh I don't know what, maybe that was a little bit of catastrophizing on my part, but I mean, these things have happened to people in the country nonetheless. Uh Um, And um, I didn't get any negative pushback. I would say if anything, if I have colleagues or, Others in the profession who maybe don't agree or don't see things uh, in a similar way or just don't say anything, I suppose.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because one of the, in your, in the article that you published along with Mm -hmm. others is uh, the implications of ideological bias Mm -hmm. in social psychology and clinical practice. Um, Mm -hmm. You write in there about multiculturalism and you say, Expressing contrarian views may be perceived by the faculty as unwillingness to internalize the generally accepted sociopolitical activism mm-hmm. <laughs> espoused by the profession, and will likely be met with disapproval. And mm-hmm. you, you also cited some other articles that talked about um, discrimination on uh against people with a different political leaning in terms of like either grants or or people coming to speak for maybe the school stuff like that so i mean um it you know it can make sense that that knowing that information and then publishing it you might maybe you think you said catastrophize a little bit and think how is this going to affect my employment and stuff like that but um yeah, can you kind of speak to that a little bit about the Expressing Country yeah, and Views? Yeah,
0: um, I could give an example, too, during one of my training experiences sitting in a seminar where the psychologist providing the presentation told us, like, if you are not fighting against oppression, you are contributing to it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, <sighs> like, I mean, what a thing to tell people. Um that presupposes that the world can best be understood in an oppressor oppressed Uh lens and that has a whole lot of implications attached to it um and i i think a strong case can be made for why that's an incomplete or uh, inaccurate way of viewing the world yeah um i mean just using kind of a sort of remote examples, like the way that we think about bullying has really changed over the years. We used to think that there are bullies and there are the bullied Uh in schools, let's say. But in reality, like those categories overlap much more than we would generally think at face value, that Mm. people who bully have been bullied and vice versa. Mm. Um, People's roles in society are much more Complicated and changing continuously, and so if you don't agree with that worldview perspective, then uh-huh. to be told that as a trainee is—I mean—I think that's indoctrination. Personally, I know that's uh, a word that some people might react to, but I—I yeah. I, you are hard-pressed to find like consistent evidence to say this is a fully accurate worldview and if you were kind of hypothesizing uh-huh. that this is one way of looking at things or in some situations then you shouldn't be drawing that conclusion at the end of the presentation
1: uh-huh.
0: um and i'm kind of forgetting the second part of your question but i know there was something i wanted to say to it uh-huh. um oh well in terms of um like being concerned for my career and Mm. speaking about this and whether that was justified or not. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I suppose I haven't been looking for a job or haven't necessarily applied to many positions since Mm. um, publishing that. So I've yet to see if that will affect me in some way. It's still early. I suppose it's only been two years, but I know in the process of working on that article, like in the early stages when I was looking for co-authors, um, a few people I had reached out to said, I'm very supportive of this and I'm happy to provide feedback,
1: mm. but
0: I I can't, I don't, I'm not able to participate on that because I haven't become licensed yet or I haven't gotten my first job out of Training Uh yet, or Uh whatever it might be, Uh or it might jeopardize my visa status, and so I I can't I can't work on this with you. Uh And I completely understood that and respected that. But I mean, clearly, like there is a concern if multiple people kind of perceive a risk in doing that. Yeah. Um. And, um, but but I think one thing that has been um, that has stood out to me through the publication process too is like when we submitted the manuscript for publication, if they are sort of refusing to publish it with insufficient grounds based on like, maybe this needs to be developed more, or we think this is weak or, you know, legitimate criticisms, uh-huh. then it's sort of reinforcing the concerns <laughs> in the article, you know?
2: Uh-huh.
0: Um, And so that, I think that has maybe been helpful.
2: Mm, Okay. Can you talk a little bit? uh, So you mentioned in the article too about the APA's publication for guidelines for boys and men. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've heard, I've read through it and, and it, I was thinking while you were talking about how the, it is main mainstream view within psychology at the moment like the whole it is uh and and so if you do kind of like if if you're viewed as a dissenter or if you fail to internalize this this message that that perhaps is being kind of um passed through indoctrination Mm -hmm. then then now now the APA has guidelines on like holding to this view and so, if you push against the view, then you're not adhering to the APA standards in a sense.
0: Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah,
2: yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, that's one of my concerns too is that, um, in order to effectively practice in our profession, that you, like, we would all need to meet some ideological witness test. Mm. Um, and for those who, aren't concerned about it. I mean, just think about it from another perspective, like imagine, and maybe this was the point at one point in time in Uh history that like, to be in academia, you had to be a conservative and you had to have like certain religious beliefs or a certain family structure. Uh And we would see that today as sort of antiquated and inappropriate. Well, I mean, now it's just on the other end of the political spectrum, I think. Yeah. And I'm concerned that, like, um, you we would have to, like, pass an ideological litmus test to become licensed, to <sighs> become boarded. I mean, in a, in a sense, there are those feelers out there to try to gauge that when you write your diversity essay for no. internship applications. Um, you may be able to find some neutral ways of writing about it, but by and large you know that there's something that's expected of you to say yeah.
1: um,
0: and using certain language, using certain terms and phrases uh-huh. um, and it uh, yeah, I'm, I'm concerned about that um, yeah. and I think even the multicultural guidelines that APA has published and I think they may have updated it more recently too, although I'm not 100% sure Um, there's a lot of concerns and flaws with those that I think when you're in graduate school or during training, um, we're just kind of not informed about, or it's not discussed. And Mm -hmm. there's a very helpful text, um, that I would recommend students have, it's a big one, but it's just fascinating as far as textbooks go, <laughs> um, it's by Frisbee and O'Donohue, published in 2018, Cultural Competence in Applied Psychology, an Evaluation of Current Status and Future Directions. And um, they really kind of get into the weeds about what is going on with um, Um, Multiculturalism, cultural competency, cultural sensitivity, and how these constructs are not well defined, how it's difficult to measure these things, what do we even mean by them, Uh are they kind of a substitute for ethnic and racial identity more than anything, Mm. Um, and uh like just the problems with sort of measuring these things too like what does it even mean to be competent at something Uh how would we know and is that i mean by and large a lot of studies base that on self-report which is very unreliable when it comes to sort of a performance-based measure where there's a lot of pressure to (laughs) be competent and a lot of pressure to not acknowledge areas of weakness yeah um But similarly, like one of the best points that I read about it was one of Bill O'Donohue's points, which is, um, and he may have been citing someone else in his chapter when he wrote about this, but it's the amateur anthropologist problem. Like if if we have this pressure to be competent treating all these different types of groups, that you take all these categories, say like, sex, gender, ethnicity, race, religion, mm-hmm. and then you think about how many variations across each of those. Uh-huh. And then you multiply those. And so now you have to develop competency <laughs> to work with, you know, yeah. like very specific things. And to really become competent and develop expertise could require a lifetime. <laughs> so how realistic is this really? Uh-huh. Um, and there's something to be said, I think, about sort of the fundamentals of human nature, about universal values that mm-hmm. sometimes gets shortchanged in these discussions. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not to say that we don't need, um, like broad-based standardized norms for certain things like in testing and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and those are appropriate and it's, there's something to be said about learning to work with people who are different from yourself. Uh-huh. Um, I'm not discounting any of those things, but I, there's a lot of unanswered questions when it comes to multicultural competency that mm. I, that need to be answered and explored, especially when from an ethics standpoint, we're expected to abide by these standards.
2: uh uh-huh. Uh-huh. yeah because if the if the lines are vaguely drawn then how are you gonna and how are you gonna know when you've crossed the line or when you've committed a right an right. ethical yeah
0: and uh another interesting thing that gets brought up in some of these texts too is um sort of the the room or need for maybe conscience clauses too so mm-hmm. At what point does um, like specific mandates for um, cultural competence sort of impede upon the right of the counselor or the therapist or the psychologist? Uh-huh. Um, and historically, APA has um, really opposed conscience clauses. And mm. maybe they did so because they feared like that this would um, sort of enable right wing psychologists to enforce Mm. religious dogma and therapy perhaps Uh but maybe now they might feel differently if it obligates a a very liberal or progressive psychologist to do something that they don't agree with ideologically or morally so um, it's interesting to kind of um, try to those scripts in a way to think about it from different perspectives
1: uh-huh.
0: I, but i think there is something to be said about sort of protect protecting the clinicians rights yeah. as well
2: i spoke with i spoke with a kind of a i would say conservative christian psychologist who was saying like according to these guidelines i i i am supposed to be trained and be competent in providing therapy to to people that maybe I strongly disagree with, or I strongly disagree with the type of service, uh, that I'm, I am required to be competent in, mm-hmm. but, but how many psychologists out there can, can deliver good therapy to like a, a fundamental Muslim client or a fundamental Christian client, uh, who's politically right, right wing or right leaning. And how are they, how many people can do that maybe as effectively as I can and right yeah and it's kind of like a double standard in that sense I think sometimes perhaps
0: yes yes I think so Mm. um recently or well last month I gave a lecture at University of British Columbia sort of on this topic and it was funded through the Heterodox Academy and um the professor from the I, I think like their equivalent of the like School of Counseling and Psychology uh. program had explained to me, like he noticed a lot of their students um like felt largely unprepared from their mm. training to start working with um clients who were maybe ethnic and racial minorities, but also had been very um morally conservative values uh, and suddenly like uh, we're really disoriented and confused because it just didn't fit like um sort of the way in which these topics are broached in the classroom which yeah. is you start to kind of um almost like uh conflate like certain ethnic identities with certain moral value systems and uh-huh. in reality it's much more complex and Diverse, really, uh-huh. um, which is kind of ironic.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, it makes me think. I, um, my grandfather was a missionary in the Philippines. And he, the, over in the Philippines, they wear these things called, um, it's like their, their dress shirt type of, they wear it to like weddings mm-hmm. and it's called, um, ah. Oh. The name is escaping mm-hmm. me right now, but it's like it's okay. like a dress shirt that Filipinos wear. It's like very traditional. Mm-hmm. Uh, he brought some back from the Philippines, and he gave me one, and um, I I wore it. It's I wore it to like a Sunday church service or something, and there were some Filipinos there, and they were like they noticed it, and they're like oh, and they they commented on it, and then we started talking as oh yeah, my grandpa was a missionary there. I've been there a couple of times, and and they, they like really appreciated it in a sense. Yeah. Um, but from what I learned in the classroom, it's like, cultural that's cultural. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. and I just feel like that's not my experience in real life. And, and if you are constantly fed, you can't do these things. You're going to offend someone, or you're going to, you're going to look bad for doing it. Then it, I you're feel right, like it, right. you're going to, you're going to be scared at what's all the minefields out there. And
0: Yes. And, and I think so a lot of the diversity trainings that have taken place in corporate settings, for instance, a lot of the research is showing now that like they are having unintended consequences. Mm. And so good intentions is not the end all be all. Uh Um, it, it starts to make people, um, like more anxious to interact with people who are culturally different, which is really sad. Um, And it makes people um, like almost like more disposed to like perceive insult or offense or to read into things, which is obviously very counter from like a CBT framework. (laughs) Um, But I remember like sitting in multicultural class and reading about microaggressions and how like one of the examples is asking someone, probably an ethnic minority, while you're on an airplane, where they're from is a microaggression. Uh, and I was sitting there thinking like, I mean, on an airplane, isn't <laughs> everyone from somewhere, from somewhere going yeah. somewhere? Like, And isn't that like just normal conversation people make? Yeah. Like when you're sitting next to a stranger and you're just making small talk and uh-huh. to start to like um, over incorporate uh those types of situations I think is really unfortunate yeah and and so like with that said too like one of the recommendations often in multicultural training is that you bring up in therapy um, uh, almost like ahead of any particular instance hmm. of like you know if I microaggress against you and <laughs> Uh, like, please forgive me in advance for my lack of knowledge, which I mean, that might be fair. Like, if you're yeah. really working with someone different, you might say like, I, I'm not actually all that familiar. Maybe you can help me understand. Yeah. But like, almost starting to prime clients to like perceive offense, rather than really just forging on that, like, uh-huh. human relationship uh-huh. and rapport. So I get concerned about that. Yeah. Um,
2: like especially perceive offense regardless of intent.
0: Right, Yeah, right. And that's where intent can really matter. I mean, sometimes we say things um, that are hurtful and we need to apologize for. And maybe yeah. sometimes we say things that are actually quite reasonable and might cause offense if misunderstood and then the conversation can happen. Yeah. But there's such a range of communications. And so to sort of, Label so much as microaggressive, um, I, I think ultimately can do a lot more damage than
2: good, yeah. Um, oh, I remember it's called a barong <laughs> the shirt. Oh, there
0: you go. <laughs> um, you had to stop thinking about it, and then <laughs> <speak to> you, <laughs> yeah.
2: And I want to be respectful of your time, uh, I think that's pretty much there. Um, <laughs> and if you could, I would appreciate. Uh, at some point, if you could email me maybe like a list of book recommendations or maybe what you've found most helpful and I can include it in the description.
0: Absolutely. I'd be happy to do that.
2: (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Nina. This has been a lot of fun and I really enjoyed the conversation.
0: I really did too. Thank you for inviting me.